Hello and welcome to Madison Story Slam. I am your host, Adam Rosted. Hey, just a heads up, our next Story Slam is January 16th. That's a Saturday at the Wilmar Center. Our theme is Humiliation. Uh, come sign up at 6, stories start at 7. The theme for this recording was Petrified. We did this one in October, and we've kind of slacked on getting it edited and posted for you. But finally, life has calmed down, and uh, I finally really just took the time to actually do it. Uh, so thanks to Ale Asylum for sponsoring us. We had a costume contest this night, so you'll hear some references to that. You'll hear my Oasis story and somebody's great response and a great story at the end from Christina. Enjoy. So, again, petrified. I don't really get scared too much. Uh, I'm 6'5 and weigh 300 pounds. There's not much that uh, really scares me anymore. But I do have a good story about a time that my grandmother was petrified. Uh, This is being recorded for our podcast. She's going to kill me. Uh, And my grandfather also might kill me that I'm telling this story. My grandfather uh, was a uh, pretty well-known pastor in Madison for about 40 years. He was a pastor of a church that I won't name that started a private Christian school the, that a lot of people in the front have, have gone to and graduated from. Uh, and his son, at the heyday of his church, there was about 1,500 people there. And, and this story is from the heyday. So uh, his son at the time was going to school at a school called CFNI uh, in Dallas, Texas. And uh, it's a Bible college, in case you're wondering. So my grandpa, I'm going to try so hard not to say his name because he's going to die just knowing that I'm t- telling the story. Anyway, um, he, uh, he and my grandma went to go visit my uncle, and uh, their first Sunday back, uh, he got up on stage. And who here has been to church regularly or at all? Like non-denominational or Lutheran? You know, you know how like the pastor will get up there and kind of like bullshit you for a while before we get to the meat of the sermon like he'll just kind of like break the ice so that's what my grandpa was doing so let's call whatever so uh he gets up and he's like well uh you know me and my grandma's name uh we went down to texas and we visited our son you know he's in bibles bible school down there and i gotta tell you we went to this new place for dinner uh what, what was it called um Duck fuckers. Yeah, and it was really good. A lot of good food at duck fuckers. And, um, and my grandmother's on the front row pew at this church just like dying because she knows that my grandfather is trying to say fudruckers, but he has now said duck fuckers twice in front of 1,500 people from the pulpit. And she was absolutely mortified and petrified. That's really all I got. Let's see if I come up with some more stories as the night goes through. But our first storyteller uh, told her first story last month, and it was great. So please put your hands together for Lindsay Bradish. <laughs> hey, guys. It's like a masquerade ball in here with all these costumes. <laughs> Yeah, I, I can't recognize anyone. I don't know anyone anyway. Um, <laughs> I have to say, it was a little hard for me to come up with a story for tonight because as a child, I was incredibly histrionic. Um, my dad used to say the only three things I wasn't afraid of were him, my mom, and my brother. And the last one's a little iffy because he's an asshole. So, <laughs> so he's always mean to me. Um, but yeah, I was scared of the moon. I was pretty sure it was going to fall down and kill me. Our golden retriever was going to obviously maul me to death. 
um, what's it, the dark Disney characters going to eat me alive, <laughs> clowns. <laughs> so <laughs> I didn't have a very good track record <laughs> as a child. And so when I had to face real fear, um, I didn't handle it very well. <laughs> but uh, so a little background. We, my parents live out by Lake Wisconsin, and it's like a really scenic, pretty area. Not a lot of crime. <laughs> um, I think the most crime I'd seen before this was a man had come up. We have a very long gravel driveway that we share with another house, and that was going to be very important later on. But a man had come up the driveway drunk, carrying a tiki torch. And again, I was convinced he was going to burn our house down. <laughs> But he was just lost from a party or something. <laughs> so anyway, it was... Um, oh, and this driveway has caused problems in the past. Because remember when we were building the house? Uh, before the driveway was even there, I refused to take a car up it. Because I was convinced that my parents didn't know how to off-road at all. And they were going to tip it and crash and burn and die. Just so... Obviously, always worst-case scenario. <laughs> Um, so, but anyway, it was the night before seventh grade started, and I had just gotten out of the bath, and I was super excited for the first day of school. I was going to wear my new Old Navy tech vest at the end of August. <laughs> it's a little too warm for it, but oh well. And the phone rang, and I picked it up, because I assumed it was probably one of my friends, you know, coordinating last-minute first day of school outfits, and it was not. <laughs> It was a man who immediately started swearing at me, like, you fucking kids, what the fuck are you doing? And so I knew it probably wasn't for me. <laughs> um, so I gave the phone to my dad, and it turns out it was our neighbor. He had recently moved in to a house that we share the bottom part of our driveway with. And my brother had had some friends over, and they were leaving. And they had, like, 16-year-old kids. They just got their license. And apparently, for him, they were driving down the driveway too fast. And they must have been kicking up dust on his house. So the way he responded was to take the gun he said he was cleaning on his front porch and shoot at them. And this is after probably shining them with a deer light and also probably hopping on the roof of their car trying to get them to slow down. Um, <laughs> so that freaked me out. <laughs> and then he said that he's going to call the cops to get these children arrested. <laughs> so again, I didn't want to deal with the police at all because I'm a child and scared of everything. <laughs> so I immediately started breaking out in hives. <laughs> which I have never done since. <laughs> this is my first physical reaction to fear. Um, and they started, I just saw a few mosquito bites at first, but then they eventually were all over my legs, <laughs> like huge welts. Um, and the cops came, and they talked to the neighbor first for a few minutes, and he came up and talked to my dad and said, talked to my dad for 30 seconds. He's like, I don't think you're the problem here. Um, <laughs> I think we're going to arrest him because they searched him. First of all, he's drunk. He has a loaded firearm that he's been shooting. And uh, they also found PCP on him. <laughs> In our wonderful neighborhood. <laughs> <laughs> And he also said they don't have any furniture in their house. And they'd lived there for maybe six months a year, so that's weird, too. 
Um, <laughs> but <laughs> uh, so yeah, he ended up getting himself arrested for that, and it didn't really calm me down though, because again, the hives and fear. But <laughs> eventually, I learned to be scared of less tangible things like rejection and failure. <laughs> Maybe public speaking. I don't know. <laughs> uh, but I am still scared shitless of crazy people with guns. <laughs> For a good reason. Gun control. Please. Um, but that's it. I just, it was, <laughs> I was scared in the moment, reacted crazily, and luckily survived. After years of thinking, I must have, like, had some crazy skin allergy. But no, it was just a crazy gunman that did it to me. <laughs> So, thank you. Thank you, Lindsay. Bridget Doxtater, that is a name. Give it up for her. Hey, just so you know, sorry. Keep the applause going until the person takes the microphone. Thanks. So I don't scare very easily, typically. And I'm probably like, what, the third person up here already to say that. So I'm already a walking cliche. Um, But it's true. But I thought back and uh, I did come up with a particular moment from my childhood where I really got the freaking bejesus scared out of me. Um, and of course, it was at the hands of my parents. So, uh, to give you a little background to understand, um, sometimes happens in families where some of the kids take after one parent a little more, and some of the kids take after another parent a little more. Uh, well, my older brother was always, you know, more or less my mom's child. Sportsy, outgoing, athletic, all that kind of stuff. My dad and I were peas in a pod, like two really weird peas in a really strange pod. Um, more like uh, studious and inquisitive and with like this dark, freaking Irish sense of humor that permeates his entire side of the family. Uh, so he and I hung out a lot, did a lot of stuff together that the other two were like, you know, not happening with that. Uh, so my story takes place, I don't know exactly how old I was at the time, but I'm going to guess at around seven years old. And like I said, my dad and I did a lot of stuff together, and he was really, really into all kinds of films, classic films, art house stuff. Uh, he also had a really big thing for like monster movies and sci-fi movies. And I glommed right onto that with him. And I don't know how many Saturdays we maybe sat around in the morning watching stuff about like, you know, 50s movies about dudes in rubber suits uh, chasing people around. But some of the cooler older movies too, like Nuclear Age, uh, Giant Ants coming and marauding the countryside. Uh, so that was kind of a background. We hadn't gotten really like intense in horror movies or anything like that, but we both kind of liked the thrill of just, you know, getting a little bit of a scare from a movie. Uh, so we were all, 
all four of us at the dinner table one evening, just talking about our days and, and who knows what. And then all of a sudden, my dad turns to me and he says, they're showing Psycho on TV this Saturday night. And I'm like, uh, cool, what's Psycho, Dad? Like, I had no idea what this is about. He says, it's a horror movie. And I'm like, oh, cool, you know. And my mom's put down her fork, and she's just kind of looking at us like, what is wrong with the two of you? And I'm like, Dad, what's it about? And he's like, it's about Norman Bates and his mother. And I'm like, ah, this sounds interesting. You know, and I'm thinking he's just telling me about it or whatever. And he's like, well, yeah, you can watch it with me Saturday night. And my mom's like, over my dead body, you two are watching Psycho together. No way. And that really bummed me out because I really wanted to know about Norman Bates and his mommy and, and hang out with my dad. Uh, so I was just kind of crestfallen that evening. And, you know, the week went on and my mom worked part time in a supermarket in our town at the time. And she had to work on Saturday evening. So she left late afternoon, kissed me goodbye, like always, said, you know, I'm working late, so I'll see you in the morning. And I'm like, okay, bye, Mom. And uh, so I'm in my room later, and I'm like coloring and stuff like that. And my dad comes by, a little knock-knock on the door, and he's like, Bridge, the movie starts in five minutes. And I'm like, what movie, Dad? And he goes, Psycho. And I'm like, <laughs> Mom said I couldn't watch. She's, and he's like... She's not here. She's not going to know. And my dad was such a stickler for the rules, right? He was a very good, he went to Catholic school uh, growing up. He was always adhering to the rules, really not one to make waves in any capacity. So I was just shocked as heck that my dad was going to go against what mom said. And I was like, yeah, I'll be right down, you know? So... Go and he sits on his uh, recliner chair, and I took my spot on the floor next to him because that's just like where I like to sit when we were watching stuff together. So I was near to him, and they were showing it. I don't know what network, like without commercial interruptions. And so, you know, the movie starts, and it's very dramatic right from the opening credits. And you know, those of you who have seen Psycho know that there's not. A lot of violence or mayhem, you know, beginning in the movie, but there's a lot of tension that just builds and builds and builds, and you're wondering what in the heck is going to happen here. Um, so we're watching, and then, like, the, uh, the female character, Marion, starts getting ready to take her shower, you know? And my dad's like, you know, watch this, you know? And I'm like, you know, because we were just weird. <laughs> uh... And so there's the shower scene, and Norman's mom, mom, right, pulls back the curtain and, eh, eh, you know, shrieky violin music and, and knifing. And I'm just sitting there like, oh, my gosh. Like, I can't believe I just saw that. Uh, very violent. And, you know, the hair is on the back of my neck standing up like they do when you get you know, a little scare from something that you've watched, and I'm just, like, slack-jawed, you know? And so the movie keeps going along, and it wasn't much further. I think Norman had just finished sinking Marion's car into the swamp out back when all of a sudden the door opened and my mom walks in. And this is, like, the one time they let her off her shift early at the supermarket. 
Uh, and so she came in the door. She's got a bag of groceries. She takes three steps, and she stops, and she's like, what are John! John, I told you she wasn't supposed to be watching this. Bridget, what are you doing? What You two aren't even listening to me. What is going on here? Bridget, you need to get ready for bed, go upstairs, and take your shower. <laughs> if my dad was weird and a little twisted, my mom was very much like Julie Andrews as Maria Von Trapp and kind of adorably clueless about a lot of these matters. So I'm like, ah, dang. And I shoot my dad a look, and he's like, sorry, you know. And I go upstairs, and I'm like, ah, I can get to see the movie now, you know. And I get clean undergarments and a new long flannel uh, nightgown. And I go off to where I normally take my shower, which is the bathroom that's adjacent to my parents' bedroom, you know, their master bedroom. And it doesn't really hit me until I walk into the bathroom that now I'm in a bathroom and I have to get in the shower. And I did not want to do that. I'm like, okay, Bridget, it's just a movie. You know, it's just a movie. Get in the shower, you know. So I turn on the water and I get in and I'm just starting to suds up and rinse my hair. And all of a sudden I see this shadow on the other side of the shower curtain. And all of a sudden my mother pulls back the shower curtain a little bit to like ask me a question or something. But that was it. I was like done. Um, I, I was so petrified. I almost threw the bar of soap at her. And she just didn't even think that maybe sending me off to the shower right after I had just watched the shower scene in Psycho was maybe not the best strategy. Um, might have been excellent revenge, but knowing my mom, I think it just really didn't occur to her. So yeah, then she came into the bathroom. and I don't know. She probably was going to ask me if I wanted some ice cream when I got out or something like that. But just scared the daylights out of me. It took me like... 10 minutes to get my breath back down to normal again, you know, and I like, I just kind of laid in bed that night, like, oh man, like, just still freaked out. Um, but the next day when I woke up, I was like, man, that was awesome. <laughs> so it was many years before I actually got to see the conclusion of Psycho, but in the meantime, uh, my mom stopped fighting us so much about watching scary movies, and she just kind of left my dad and I to our own devices with that kind of stuff. So that is how my parents inadvertently joined forces to freak the heck out of me. Thank you, Bridget. You think your mom's bad? I wasn't allowed to watch the cartoon Doug growing up. I shit you not. Because one episode, there was one time where Doug's parents left him home alone, and he, he was wearing a T-shirt and just his tidy whities and socks, and he slid into the room to old-time rock and roll, like the Tom Cruise scene from uh, Risky Business. And my mom happened to walk in right at that scene of the cartoon Doug. And I was like, Adam, Abby, Aaron, that was my siblings, turn this shit off. This is filth. And never allowed to watch it again. It was like the most wholesome cartoon that's ever existed. 
Uh, I'm going to tell you a quick story about the time I petrified a uh, old woman in a bathroom stall. Uh, you, you may have heard it before. There's a lot of new people here, so most of you probably haven't. Uh, this story is about the time uh, I, I scared a, an old woman in the uh, bathroom at the uh, Belvedere Oasis. Uh, I was dating a girl in Chicago at the time. I was a senior in high school. And uh, you're going to learn a lot about me in this story, maybe a little too much. Uh, Let's just get it right out there. I hate pooping in public restrooms. In fact, I don't want to do that in any other bathroom than my bathroom. I, I don't think I'm outside of the norm there. I think most people prefer that. But but I do take it a step further where it's like... So I was I was at my... This was a fresh girlfriend, my first girlfriend. Fresh. <laughs> she was fresh. Uh... <laughs> And uh, uh, it was Thanksgiving. It was Thanksgiving weekend. I had ate a shit ton of food. On the way down there, I blew a tire. I blew a tire on the way down there. That was quite the laugh. And uh, it sucked because I spent about four hours on the side of the road because my sister had taken my tire iron. Uh, so I finally get down there. Like Thanksgiving is over. It's 9 o'clock at night at this point. Uh, but I spent three days down there and ate a ton of food. And uh, she had this one bathroom in this tiny house that was right next to the kitchen where like all the foot traffic was. And I for sure was not going to poop there. Um, and I'm not going to a, like a gas station to do it. And so anyway, the great thing about coming back to Madison from Chicago was the Belvedere Oasis. Belvedere Oasis is great because it's got, you know, like food, restaurants, uh, the normal men, men's and women, men and women restrooms. There we go. And then they have what they call the family bathroom. The family bathroom is great because you go in, you can lock the door. There's a sink, there's a urinal, there's a stall. It's all for you. And supposedly your, your family for some reason. I, like, I get that it's for, like, a mom and a baby or whatever, but I don't know. The name Family Bathroom is like, come on in, kids, uh, which is very strange to me. So I, I'm feeling great. Um, not so much, actually, because it's been three days of Thanksgiving meal food without having done the deed. And... Uh, <clears throat> And uh, I was opening a... I had gotten gas, and I was opening a soda on the interstate, a Dr. Pepper, and it got all over my hands, and, and I had to, like, wipe it on the seat, but then my hands were all sticky and gross, so I, I see the Belvedere Oasis, and I'm like, hell yeah, I get to poop. So I, I park, and I'm like... I, I can't quite, like, run, because it's one of those, and he, so I'm, like, really, like... Uh, at a fast walk pace with a clench. And, uh, and so I wash my hands real quick because they're sticky and nobody wants to do that with sticky hands. Uh, so I wash my hands and then I like fixed my hair in the, in the mirror. Oh, uh, and you ever just have one of those days where you're just like really killing it? Like you just look, you see yourself and you're like, damn. I was having one of those days. You might not believe it now, but I was having one of those days. And so I looked at myself in the mirror, and I just, in exactly this voice, very loudly, said, You look good. (laughs) Because I did. Uh, So then I turned to the stall, because that's why I'm here. I'm very excited about it. I turned to the stall, and I push it open. Except the door is stuck. So I push a little harder. Door is still stuck. I then pound on the door, 
this is a damn stubborn door. So then I wrap my hands around the top of this door like this. And I'm about as tall as I am now, a little bit skinnier. Uh, and I ra- so I wrap my hands around this door and I shake this thing like I'm trying to free somebody who's been captive for years. And I shake it and in exactly this voice I go, open up! Because I had to poop. And that's when I hear it. I hear this sound. This is the point in the story where I realize this door is not stuck. This door is locked. So you know how like a a bathroom stall uh, has that little space between the door and the rest of the stall where if you do one of these, you can see everything. So I do one of these and I just see this tiny old woman shaking on the toilet. Everything that has transpired over the last two minutes rushes through my brain. She hears the door open. She's like, that's weird. I thought I locked it. She hears the lock go. She's like, oh, shit. She hears this psycho wash his hands for some reason and then say, you look good. And she's like, how can he see me? Then she hears or partakes in me trying to break down the door of the stall she has locked. Scientifically, everything adds up to sexual assault. This woman is in fear for her life, and that hits me, and I go, there's no way I'm not going to jail today. And so I booked it out of there, (laughs) like the fastest I've ever run. Who cares about a clench at this point? So, like, I'm, like, running, and I'm terrified. I'm like, I'm going to jail. I've got to poop. I can't do it there either. (laughs) The great thing about the Belvedere Oasis is there's another family bathroom on the other side. So that's where I went, and uh, then I got some Krispy Kreme donuts, and it was a great day, except she got in line right behind me. It was horrifying. I still, to this day, I'm, I'm just hoping that I'm flipping the channels and, like, see her on Oprah or someone on Oprah being like, and then he tried to break down the door. And he said, you look good. And he couldn't see me. And, I, like, I would love to be able to, like, or just, like, hear, walk down the street and hear somebody telling that story to somebody and, like, how it's just, like, wrecked their life. And, and like, I want to go, no! Like, listen, I'm so glad I found you. I can share my... It's never going to happen. In this, in this woman's mind, I'm always going to be a potential rapist. And I'm not. Uh, Tom Schmidt is our next storyteller. So remember to keep that round of applause going until he gets the microphone. Hi. So uh, I lived next door to my grandparents' house when I was a kid. And in between my house and my grandparents' house was an empty lot. It was, was their yard. And the, the yard was divided up, and the, the back of the yard was uh, 
you know, rose garden and various plants of sorts. In front of the yard was a couple of birch trees and a nice big garden with tulips in it. And my grandfather had strung lights all the way around that part of the yard, so it was lit up at night. There was a swing in the yard that I used to sit on with my great-grandmother and bring her stacks of golden books for her to read to me. So it was, it was a really nice, I had a warm feeling about the yard. But at night, that's where the wolf lived. And um, when I was a kid, I think the reason why this wolf became a big problem for me was Walt Disney had done a version of the Peter and the Wolf. And the music was uh, for that was, I think it was based on a guy named Sergei Prokofilov, I believe. I'm probably saying that wrong, if anybody knows anything about music. In any event, the wolf in that particular version of Disney, when he roared, it just, I mean, it just scared the living hell out of me. And so at one point I told my grandparents that indeed I wanted those lights on when I had to cross that yard at night. And I explained that, you know, there was a wolf that lived there. And my grandparents uh, were fun-loving. <laughs> and so they explained that if I would eat food that would sharpen my teeth... In other words, I would get sharpen my fangs, is how they put it, and that was the crusts and the heels of rye bread and pumpernickel bread and 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 uh, well, things that I really loved. I mean, those to this day, I still go for the heels of those kinds of well, good loaves of bread, I should say. In any event, that's where the wolf lived, and indeed, when I would race across that yard at full speed. And I was fast as a little guy. Um, that wolf, if he ever had gotten me, uh, he would have received the, the bite of my fangs. <laughs> and that's the story. Oh, I can, I, can I, I'll sidestep a little bit, okay? Anyway, that's my story. So, one of the peculiarities, the neighborhood I lived in when I was a little guy was a, a highly ethnic neighborhood. So there was people from all over, well, Eastern Europe mostly. And uh, a lot of these people I, were, you know, new immigrants. Well, as a kid, you don't pay any attention to that. Uh, you know, if they talk funny, well, okay, so they talk funny. Or if you walked inside their house and it smelled funny, well, fine, it smelled funny. Sometimes it made you so that you didn't want to talk to them, and sometimes you wanted to definitely get in that house at dinner time. So at trick-or-treat time, we'd go through the neighborhood, and, and of course, as kids, you were going for the good stuff, you know, the candy bars and the cookies. And this is before the razor blade nonsense. That, well, I shouldn't say nonsense. Before the razor blade incident. So when you'd get a baked good, that was absolutely fantastic. Or if you'd get an apple, that was really nice. On the other hand, in our neighborhood, because it was, a, a, like I said, a highly ne ethnic neighborhood, you would oftentimes get a carrot. And, or you'd get a potato. <laughs> and, you know, as a kid, you thought, well, what the, you know, what, 
you know, why are you giving me a potato? But, but, but these people had made, perhaps, I don't know this for a fact, but perhaps this is the first time that they had everybody had any kid knock on their door for trick-or-treat, and they wanted to participate in the American process. And part of that was giving something to the kids. And so oftentimes it would be, <laughs> be a potato or it would be a <laughs> carrot. And uh, the following year we just didn't go there. <laughs> anyway, that's it. Thank you, Tom. I got to be honest, I probably would have thrown the uh, carrot or potato at them, not at their house, but just like <laughs> one person found that funny. <laughs> Is Abigail Groff still here? Put your hands together for Abigail Groff. Okay. Uh, first of all, I would like to just clarify something. I am totally, definitely in costume. Um, I am a castaway on a desert island because I have been marooned. Okay. All right. Now that we're all on the same page here, because I definitely remembered that there was a costume contest. Um, the scariest thing that has ever happened to me in my entire life is when I thought I lost my cat. Okay, I have to clarify a couple of things for this story to make sense. Um, when I was a child, I lived with my parents, as most children do, um, and my mom was very anti-pet. And her rule was nothing that sheds and nothing that poops outside of the cage that it lives in. So no cats, no dogs, um, nothing fluffy. We had a fish tank for a very long time. Um, and I found out the very strange and hard way that you can give fish back to the store. Um, and my dad did that once when we were at school. Um, so we didn't have fish for very long. Um, and so when I moved out of my parents' house and I was going to college, um, my mom calls my getting cats my teenage act of rebellion. I didn't, like, get a mohawk or a tattoo or a motorcycle. I got cats. Um, so my boyfriend and I have two cats. Um, one of them's name is Maybe, after Maybe Funke from Arrested Development. <laughs> Yes, yes, we're very clever. And the other one's name is Abed, after Abed Nadir from Community. Not as many people watch that show. Okay, all right, cool. Um, and you have to understand a little something about these cats' personalities for this story to make sense. Um, maybe has an incredibly bratty personality. She is a teenager. She, when you, like, pick her up and try to pet her, she'll give you this look like... Mom, I'm too cool for you to pet me. You need to put me down or my friends are all going to see me. <laughs> and then when you're like doing something else, like sitting on the couch, watching TV or whatever, she'll hop up on your lap and she'll give you this other look like you can't tell anybody about this, but I'm going to snuggle right now. <laughs> I'm too cool. You can't tell anybody. Abed, on the other hand, is an idiot. <laughs> 
He is so sweet and so affectionate, but he's afraid of everything, and he is stupid. Um... Whenever somebody new comes into the house, he'll be like, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, there is a person here, and it doesn't smell like the other people who live in this house, and it means that they are going to kill me, and I have to hide. Right now. Um, So he will hide anywhere, and his favorite place is up on top of the kitchen cabinets, like six inches away from the ceiling, and he'll just kind of punch down and be like, are they gone yet? Are they gone? And then when there's nobody else there, he is so affectionate. But he also thinks that he's the only cat that lives in the house. So if I'm sitting on the couch or laying down or something and maybe is sitting on my lap, he will just climb up and he'll be like, oh, yep, excuse me. Oh, there's a lump here and I'm going to sit right on your chest because I am the only cat and you need to hug me right now. So I have this incredibly affectionate, adorable, stupid cat. Um, And it was last August, and my boyfriend and I were getting ready to move out of our old apartment. So everything was in boxes, and we were trying to take care of the last couple of maintenance problems that all of the terrible old apartments around the neighborhoods in Madison have. And the particular maintenance problem that we were dealing with at the time is a hive of wasps that would not die. So we were living in this terrible, falling apart apartment that was full of wasps. They're the kind of wasps that are so big that like when you hit them initially against the window, like most bugs will just kind of like squish. These wasps won't squish. They will spring back up and they'll be like, oh, you tried to hit me? Okay, I'm angry now and I'm going to sting you more than once. Yeah, so we were dealing with these, and we had called maintenance, and maintenance came once, and they said, we took care of the wasps' nest, everything's going to be fine, and they didn't, and there were more wasps, and then we called maintenance for a second time, and they were like, oh, no, don't worry about it, it's fine, there was like a 12-inch wasps' nest in the attic, we missed the last time, but don't worry, now they're all gone, they were not all gone. So we had discovered, like, our third round of terrible, horrible, scary killer wasps, and we're in this tiny apartment full of bugs and our two cats, and we just want to get out of there. We don't have air conditioning. We're exhausted. And so I'm asleep, and it's like 8 a.m., and I hear this incredibly loud knocking on the door, and it's maintenance, unannounced, And eight in the morning. Not only am I in my pajamas, but our house is a mess. It is like half packed up, needs to be cleaned. It's terrible. So maintenance comes in and I'm like, I'm, I'm just going to go back to sleep. I'm sorry. And they're like, sure, that's fine, whatever. Um, and our cats are not in the bedroom at this point. They're just kind of wandering around and we have a big sign on the outside of our door that says, Please be careful. We have two cats. Don't let them out. And after maintenance leaves, I get up and I go to feed the cats. And if you have cats or any kind of animal, you know that when they hear the food hit the bowl, they're like, yes, it is time to eat. Let me go and do the food and then it will eat it and it will be so great. And yes, hello, hello. I am so cute. Will you give me more food? Um, So... They, I, I pour the food into the bowl, and maybe comes running, and she gives me that look like, finally. And I'm looking for Abed, and I cannot find him. And usually what this means is that he is under something. So I look under the chairs, and I look under the futon, and I look just like under the edge of the kitchen counter, and I can't find him. And I'm like, where else would this stupid cat be? And his other favorite place to be is just sitting in the tub 
for some reason. So I check the tub, and he's not in the tub. And I check in the closets, and he's not in any of the closets. And I was like, okay, this is really weird because he always comes when he hears his food. And so I... I'm thinking, and I check all these places two and three times again. I check kind of down the stairs, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, he must just be on top of the kitchen cabinets again. So I go into the kitchen, and I look up on top of the cabinets, and he's not there. He is not in any of his favorite places. I look outside of the door. I run down the stairs to the next apartment. He's not there. And I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, the maintenance guys let my poor, stupid cat out into the world that has cars and streets and storm drains and he's going to die because he's too dumb to know what's going on and I was terrified. So I wake up my boyfriend and I'm like, Chase, Chase, Abed is gone. The maintenance guys let him out and we are just, we're stressed from moving, we're exhausted and we're so we're running around in this terrible panic like in our pajamas and our outside shoes like, where's our cat? Where's our cat? And he like goes down the street and like goes to the corner and goes back and can't find him. And if any of you have pets, you know, like the feeling that you get when you think something has happened to them, like it's horrible. It is the worst. Like your heart is pounding. You feel like you lost a child or something that sounds incredibly cliche and like overbearing or whatever. But I felt like I had a lot to prove with these cats because they were my act of rebellion. Um, and I looked around and I looked around and I looked around and I could not find this cat. And so I went back down to sit on my bed and I felt defeated. I was like, I have lost this living thing. I am the worst person in the world. I don't know if there is somebody up there who is judging me for this terrible thing that I did, but I'm really sorry. Please let me know how I can start making it up to you. And then I see this tiny orange face peeking out from behind the back of the Papazon chair in the absolute back corner of the bedroom. And he has this look on his face like, are they gone? <laughs> because I was very afraid. And then he just hops up onto my lap like, oh, did you see the scary men who were in here before? I was very afraid. And so I stood behind the papas on chart, but I think that everything is okay right now because you smell right. Okay. And that was the most scared I've ever been. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Emily Eckloff. Emily, Emily, Eckloff, Emily. Okay, clap for Emily. So I was trying to think of what I'm afraid of when I got here because I never plan ahead, but I really love to have a microphone in front of a crowd of people that I've never met. Um, and like, I like to think that I'm not afraid of anything. And I asked my friends and they were like, yeah, I don't really, you really love your plants a lot. And you really get freaked out when they start like browning and you don't know why, but that's not like a good, like none of you are invested in my house plants. So it's not really a good story. Um, but then I remembered how terrified I am of the upper peninsula of Michigan. <laughs> and I'm about to tell you why, um, my family growing up 
was like the typical like Wisconsin, like we have a weird cabin that's a relatives and we've never heard of that relative, but we go there every summer. And apparently other people go there too, but it looks like no one's been there in like a thousand years and everything's really dusty and nothing really works right. We had one of those. And we went to the same one, and, like, it was still kind of creepy, but it wasn't. It was, like, in Manaqua, which is, like, halfway scary. You know. You're nodding. Like, you know. Um, so it was fine. I had, like, finally gotten used to it. It was okay. And then the weird guy that apparently wasn't actually related to us, I think my dad got in a fight with him. We weren't allowed to go to that cabin anymore. But, of course, we found another one. Because what else are you going to do in the summer? What are you going to do? Um, so this one is up in the UP. And my dad is so excited, and my brother's so excited. We're all really outdoorsy. And this is, like, right on Lake Superior. And so we're driving up there, and I'm circulating. Like, I looked, even in, like, middle school, very liberal. Like, I had bright pink hair, and my, like, minivan was, like, what was mine? Not my minivan. My mom's minivan was, like, plastered with, like, all of the bumper stickers that aren't in the UP, usually. And um, there's no gun rack on it. I hate that's like a stereotype. <laughs> but like we were definitely the odd one out is where I'm going. And so like I'm kind of uncomfortable and my brother can kind of tell and like he's my brother, so he starts making me more uncomfortable by pointing out all of the other gun racks. And we're driving and we get kind of into that like phase where you're near the cabin where like there's no more road signs and like the directions that are printed out from somewhere say like turn left at like the red sign with a bullet hole. And we get up to this cabin, and the outside is gorgeous. It looks like a little postcard. It's this tiny blue, like, beach house, and it is literally right on the shore of Lake Superior. You could hear the waves, like, when you were inside. It was really cool, which almost distracted you from how terrifying the inside of this cabin was. Everything, like, no one had been there. Like, no, there's no way anyone had been there in the last decade. And... There was a TV, but it was like, I didn't even know how to work it, and neither did my dad. Like, that's how old this thing was. And, um, yeah, it was just kind of like a hot mess, and my brother's really allergic to dust, which isn't, like, I don't know why we did this. Like, every time, he just got really sick, and we had to leave. Um, but it's our first night there, and my mom is, like, desperately trying to make this really great, but, like, it's a pretty big cabin, and so, like, She's like, you get your own room. And I'm like, oh, in the dusty murder house? I love it. I'll sleep so good. And so I'm in, like, this terrifying, like, shining twin bedroom with, like, a big closet. It's, like, creaky for no reason. And my mom's, like, really trying to make this happen. She's really excited. And so she's like, let's go for a hike the next morning. And I'm like, all right, I like the woods. Let's go for a hike. And there's, not, there's no trails. It's just, like, private property with no demarcations. And... Um, so we're kind of walking around, and we start seeing things. It just gets, like, progressively more troubling as you go. Like, we start walking, and we get, we're kind of close to the road still, and then there's, like, this ravine. And, like, my brother's a teenager, so he's like, let's go into the ravine. And we follow him because he's bigger than us. I don't know. And it's just, like, filled with trash and old appliances and, like, toilets and stuff. Everyone just, like, got an agreement of, like, this is where we'll just throw all of this, and then no one will see it, and we don't have to worry anymore. Um, so I was, like, a little unnerved, but my mom was like, this happens sometimes. This is just a solution to a problem that someone came up with. And so I was kind of, like, I was quieted for the moment. I was like, that's, like, okay, that's fine. And so we keep walking, and, like, this sort of trail, like, people had been here before that we're on starts to not 
be as comfortable. Like, there's, mm, this might just be the woods now. And <laughs> we're walking, and we start seeing signs that you can't read anymore, like, because of rust and dents and stuff. And I'm, get, I'm like, maybe these were important. What do you think they said? <laughs> and my mom and my brother are like, don't, just, you're, you're a youth. Like, don't even worry about it. And so we keep walking, and, like, these signs are getting more and more frequent, and there's, like, the little ones that, like, are painted and, like, kind of low to the ground, but you can't read those either. And, like, whoever made these signs, like, just, like, what were you thinking? Like, you put them outside, not weatherproof at all. Um, So I'm kind of, I'm just getting a little, like, I'm a little antsy. I'm starting to get a little sweaty. I'm, like, looking around a lot for just murderers. I don't know. And my brother's, like, still really into this hike. My mom's still really trying to get me excited. So we're walking, and I see this little clearing, which for some reason my, like, middle school heart was like, maybe there will be, like, cute animals or, like, nothing frightening in this beautiful clearing. So I go behind these trees, and I just stop walking. And my mom's pretty far away from me, so I just start calling for my brother. But, like, I can't. Like, my voice is broken. (laughs) And so I'm just kind of, like, whimpering. And then finally I just start throwing things at him. And he comes over and sees what I see, which is, um, okay, it's a bloody office chair (laughs) with rope around the bottom. And I am, like, just, I was terrified. I might have peed my pants. I don't, I don't remember. Um, and so I'm like, someone died here. Like, that is what, this is a murder scene that we found. That's, that is the only explanation that there is. And so my mom has finally caught up with us, sees what we see, and just, like, very poorly pretends that it's fine. (laughs) And she's like, oh, you guys found a deer stand. And, like... I've never hunted a day in my life. No one ties a deer to an office chair. My mom can be a pretty good liar. That was not her best work. And my brother, like, no, like, sees how scared I am. And he's like, he's like going along with it. He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That totally, that's a thing that people do, and it's fine. It's probably not even a thing. And I'm like, we need to go, like, we need to run. Like, why are we standing here? We're next. There will be three office chairs. We need to leave. And my mom's like, mom's like, that's not a bad idea. We should probably get away from this deer stand as fast as we can, calmly. And so we start walking, but there's no trail, and we have no idea where we are. And those terrifying signs that I told you about before keep happening more frequently, only now they're legible and they say no trespassing. That was how I felt. That was, that was seventh grade Emily. She's terrified. And so we're walking and we find, like, I can see the road. I'm like starting to calm down. I'm like, that guy probably had it coming. I don't like, he probably wasn't like a seventh grader in the woods. Like they're not going to kill me. Probably. I can see the road. That's fine. And so we start going for the road, and we see one more sign that says no trespassing that is riddled with bullet holes. And my brother, like, thinks now is a great time to, like, make a joke. And he's like, they don't even know. We've been trespassing the whole time. And he turns around and just, like, kind of screams 
like a, like a taunt that like a middle like a high school boy would think is funny. And we hear this porch door slam. <laughs> And, like, all of a sudden, all of us can see this, like, tiny cabin in the distance and, like, dead sprint. Like, to the road, all three of us just silently agreed, like, we have to leave now. So we get back to the road. It's, like, a couple miles away from our cabin. We don't really know where we are. My mom ends up calling my dad with, like, her terrible phone signal. And he, like, comes in his pickup truck and, like, gets us, asks us how everything went. And my mom tells him about the deer stand. She's, like, still lying. And my dad, like, picks up, and he's like, yeah, that's, that's a thing. That's just, like, a, it's like a poor man's deer stand. And I've, like, carried this with me that, like, I, like I'm just sure one day, like, police are going to knock at my door. And they're going to, like, know that I saw this. And, like, it's going to be, like, a key witness to, like, a mob murder. But my mom never, like, cops to it. She was never like, no, you're right. That's definitely what happened there. Until I, like, retold this story, trying to... Because she was like, we never lied to you as children. We were very honest. And I was like, what about that one time we happened upon a murder in the woods? And you lied about it. And she and my brother simultaneously are just like, oh, yeah, that was terrifying. Someone died there. (laughs) So moral of the story is, don't lie to your children about what a deer stand is. And never go to the UP. Stop going to cabins. Just don't do it. Thank you. Give it up for Drew Pirelli. So this is a 100% true story about not the scariest or most scared I've ever felt, but probably the scariest thing I've ever done. So uh, I went to high school in the Boston area. Um, Me and my best friend David, for fun, we used to do things like climb buildings, um, explore abandoned buildings or climb construction sites. Um, Our first night ever climbing a building, we managed to get on top of the town hall of our town, which is kind of like a cool symbolic thing. Um, there's this abandoned Polaroid factory near our town, and I took a girl there on a date once. Um, <laughs> I guess she trusted me. Um, one time, David was peeing off of an awning, and a fucking cop just, like, pulled up right under the awning, and he had to, like, hit the floor, and he was stuck there for, like, 30 minutes. So, yeah, we, I mean, we just like to go on adventures and stuff like that. Uh, then I went to college, and it became more difficult, and I had less time to do stuff like that. So a few months ago, I was visiting home. Um, me and my friend Mizzle were meeting up with David. We were catching up. I was like, hey, what have you been up to? He's like, well, a few months ago, my friend showed me this abandoned mental hospital on the top of this hill. And I was like, oh, that sounds really cool. And he's like, you want to go? And I'm like, I, yeah, sure. I mean, it was dark out, but I couldn't really say no. So we get in the car. We get to the area. We can't really find parking, and my mind's kind of like looking for an excuse not to do this because I know it's going to be terrifying. So he's like, well, we could just go tomorrow when it's light out. And a big part of me is like, yeah, we should do that. That'll be better. But there's another big part of me that's thinking like, no, like I should, I need to do more stuff than I'm afraid of. I just spent 
maybe like a three or four year period pretty much spending my free time like smoking weed, snorting stuff and drinking and doing nothing. And I was always mad at myself for, you know, not going outside of my comfort zone because I would think back onto the like the most pivotal moments in my life. And there were always times that I did something that really scared me. But, you know, in the last few years, like whenever the, the time came to do something scary in that moment, I could never really push myself to do it. So I was thinking like, no, this is this is one of those times and I'm going to regret it. So like, let's just do this right now. So we parked the car, we get out, it's fucking raining out. There's lightning. Um, he, t- he takes us to the hill. It's This place is like on top of this wooded hill. So we start hiking through the woods. We're walking for, for a good like 15, 20 minutes through these thick woods. And all of a sudden we come to a clearing and I see it. And it's this big ass building, probably twice the size of the building we're in now. It's like four stories, like a couple hundred feet long. And I'm like, God damn it. This is like how every horror movie starts. Like I should just turn around. But I'm like, no, we're going to do it. So we start scoping it out. We go to the front door. Somebody, all the, all the windows and doors are boarded up. And somebody spray painted on the front board a pentagram and the words turn around. <laughs> so I'm like, shit. But so we keep, we walk around the whole building. We can't really find a good way in. Um, all the windows either have boards on them or this like really thick screen that was ostensibly to keep the patients inside. Um, there's like vines growing all over this building. Like at one point we climb up to a balcony and try to get into the door there, but it's locked. So um, and the place that he got in before was this piece. There's this piece of plywood, but it wasn't screwed to the window frame. But some people who worked at the surrounding mental hospital, which wasn't abandoned, there's was just one abandoned building, had piled a bunch of logs and dirt in front of that board. So we were like, there's no way we're getting in there. So... We were about to call it quits, but then we decided, like, you know what, let's just try to dig up that board. So we go around back to where the board is. We start digging. We thought it was going to take us, like, 45 minutes. It only took us, like, 10 minutes. Uh, We pull the board up. There's this little window, probably about yay high. Um, Mizzle slips through first. David goes in, and I go in. He's like, oh, by the way, there's asbestos in here. I'm like, okay. So we tie our shirts around our faces, which probably didn't do anything. Um, we have our cell phone flashlights on. Um, we found ourselves in what could only be described as a dungeon. There's like these brick, like cinder brick walls. There's these arch doorways and these rooms where I could just imagine patients being like strapped to the bed and brutally tortured. Um, so we start walking around. We walk up. We find a staircase. Um, we walk up a couple flights of stairs, and immediately we see a little girl's shoe, just a single little girl's shoe sitting there. And I'm like, Jesus Christ, like, this, is, this is intense. Um, we walk around a little bit. This place was absolutely torn to shreds. Like, the wallpaper had been torn off. Um, there were, like, school chairs just thrown around. There was broken glass everywhere. Like, it looks like they had just gutted it and just left it and boarded everything up and just left it how it was. Uh, there were, like, there were kitchen areas where fridges had been knocked over into the walls. You know, we found all sorts of crap. Um, we went up another flight of stairs, and we find this bulletin board full of these little children's drawings. The most eerie one was probably just this, like, eye that somebody had, like, scrawled in pencil. It's just this black eye looking out at you. It was was creepy. Um, We go up another flight of stairs, and we walk into this room, 
and it's the one room that doesn't look like the wallpaper has been torn off of it. Uh, all the walls are painted with silhouettes of children holding hands surrounding the walls and this like sunrise in the background. There's this one door in the room with like all these flowers painted on it. We try to open it, but it's locked. Or there was like a bunch of dead bodies piled up behind it or something. So we couldn't get in. Um, we go up to the top floor, and at the end of a hallway, we find this chalkboard. And there's this one big piece of chalk. And written on the chalkboard are mementos from all these other explorers. Things like, oh, Danny was here in 2008. Emily was here in 2010. So we write our names in the year, and there's plenty of chalk for you know all the next explorers. At this point, we had been there for like 30 minutes, and I was thoroughly terrified. So we got the fuck out of there. We slipped back out of the window. We came in, started running down the hill, and I felt a high greater than any high I had felt in the last few years. (laughs) Thank you, Drew. What is it about little girls that are just terrifying? Like that little girl shoe, man. If I was walking through some abandoned thing and saw a little girl shoe, I, like, why'd you keep going? That's the cue to just be like, nope, uh-uh. Uh, next up, who do we have? Eleanor Conrad, is that your name? Put your hands together for Eleanor! Thank you. So I'm going to sit down because I've had a lot of mead. Um, <clears throat> so my mom, my mom is um, diabetic. And so we know all of the rest stops. Oh, hey, we know. <laughs> we know this is not the story that you know, but I'm about to tell the story that you know in a second. We know, we know all the rest stops. Um, if you don't know if you have diabetes, usually you have to use the restroom more often than other people. So um, we're coming back from Chicago. And I'm really excited because in Chicago there's the Belvedere Oasis, right? Yeah. And what's, what's at the Belvedere Oasis but Panda Express? And who doesn't love Panda Express? Anyone who's ever had actual Asian food. But I, I hadn't, because I grew up here. And so I was like, oh, yay, Panda Express. So I get in line. And it's a long line, because it was midday, and everyone was there. And, uh, and this is kind of a sad story, um, because I didn't get the Panda Express. Because my mother, who'd been uh, using the family restroom to, to change her insulin, came out and she was like, we have to go, Eleanor, because there's a rapist in the family restroom. We need to leave now. So mystery solved, you guys. But that's not my story. My story is actually... um, my story was brief. I'll try to keep it brief. So when I was, when I was little, um, my brother was like five years older than me. And if you've got, you know, you've got one kid who's at the age of like, why is the sky blue? Why are there lines on the road? And then the other sibling is like five years older. And they're like, who cares? 
whatever, you're stupid. Like, that's, that's the relationship, right? So um, when he got annoyed with me, he would just lock me in the basement. <laughs> it's not funny, you guys. The basement was fucking scary. Do you guys clearly, I mean, like, everyone's, we got some people from Pittsburgh, but in Wisconsin, everyone has a basement because that's where you go when the tornadoes happen. Um, but it's also where people kill people in silent movies. And so in my basement, um, we had a house that had been through a lot of trauma. And um, we had, like, there was, like, a toilet down there with, like, one light that swung, you know, that light that you, like, pull, and then it just swings. Um, And there were no, there was, like, a door but no walls to that bathroom. Um, And there was a bunch of, like, electrical wire was just show. And um, then there were a bunch of, like, scratches on the basement door. All of the um, wood, kind of like here, how the wood is, like, really dark, has that dark... Um, not paint, but whatever the other thing is. Fuck it, I had mead. Um, had had a bunch of like scratches on it, so there were lighter places in the in the wood, where something was clearly like scratching to get out of the basement. Um, and so I hated having to be in the basement. If I ever had to use the toilet in the basement, I would like I for some you know how when you're a kid you make up little things that like protect you. So for me, it was like I would flush the toilet, and if I got to the the top of the stairs before the toilet had like stopped flushing, I was safe, right? Because <laughs> that makes sense. And um, and so so that was the that was the type of basement. Not only that. But there's like a little wine cellar off to the side of this basement with a door that's like that's like this big. So it's like it's like this this big. So just enough that like an adult could fit through, but like super creepily, like a crawling adult, right? So I'm, so that's there, and that actually leads to the outside. And I'm like, that's super creepy. Someone could totally be in there. And I convinced myself that someone was totally in there. I'm sorry, I said this would be brief, but it's taking a little bit longer. So I found out that um, actually there was a reason for the fact that the toilet didn't have walls and the lights swung back and forth. And we had a, a little hovel in the basement that could fit a person. Apparently, um, the, the couple that owned the house before my parents... Um, was an older man and his wife, Bob and Ethel. Ethel was obviously the wife. Um, And Ethel was a little slow on the uptake. She was um, not, uh, like, she's not very sharp. She's not sharp as a tack, you'd say. A little dull. Um, And Bob was fucking nuts. And Bob... Bob, this is where our stories meet, young lady. Bob started dismantling the house from the inside, and he would take, like, random boards and things and move them to some place up north where he was making his own little chateau for himself, which was really just a hut. It's not funny. <laughs> so that's why there, like, things were missing from the house. Not only that, but Ethel was getting sick. And Ethel was getting sick because she had a little soda every day that Bob made for her. And he was poisoning her, putting arsenic and rat poison in the soda every day. 
And it wasn't until the landlord, who was my grandfather, was like, hey, Ethel, why are you so sick? She's like, I don't know. I just, I just am drinking the sodas and I'm taking walks. <laughs> and so she got into the hospital and they figured out that it was him. And so he was on the lam. And so they were looking everywhere for him. And it turns out that a neighbor saw him, and he was in that fucking hovel where he'd be living for a month in that tiny little hovel in the basement. He'd just been living there and, like, sneaking out at night to get food from Woodman's because they're 24 hours. <laughs> and and so, so they caught him. Um, and my brother would lock me in the basement not knowing this story. He didn't know the whole story. And he had me completely to blame. But it added an extra shiver to my spine when um, only a few years later, my dad says to my mom, he's like, hey, uh, I just saw, I saw outside and uh, just saw Bob. He's just out there. Guess he's out of, out of prison. And I was like, I bet you don't know this. I know this story, Dad. And now I can never go to the bathroom in the basement again. Thank you. You know, I have told that Belvedere Oasis story a few times at Story Slams. That was like the funniest thing I've ever heard. Honestly, that was great. I don't even remember what your actual story was about. I was still marveling at your response. Christina Vanna. Put your hands together for Christina Vanna. Hey, what's going on? So uh, I'm going to kind of take you back in time into my 20s. Um, I'm 29, so we're going to go maybe 21 range. I lived in Milwaukee at the time. Um, it was a really hard time for me. I, was, uh, I hadn't started transition yet. Um, just lots of self-exploration, lots of heavy drug use psychedelics. It just got to a point where, you know, I was constantly searching in all the wrong places for what I was really looking for. And, uh, you know, it, it was always like that, I would say. Like, through my teens, you know, into my 20s, it was just constantly looking in the wrong areas, constantly wondering, where am I? Like, what, what am I supposed to be doing with my life? There's something missing. This isn't right. Something doesn't feel right. And, um, yeah, it was a hard time. It was, it was a really hard time for me. And, and, I, and I'm relating it to the aspect of it was one of the scariest times of, like, a realization of where I had to change my life. So I was a chef um, for basically 12 years. I was uh, cooking for the Zilli Hospitality Group in Milwaukee. Did really, really nice work, you know, but as far as kind of work ethic goes, as far as in kind of any kind of integrity as a person, you know, I was stoned constantly at my job. You know, I was constantly looking for 
different more ways I could get fucked up on the weekend, get more fucked up. And it just got to a point where I was just saying to myself, okay, like, is this how it's going to be? Like, is this like the culinary business? Like, I'm going to constantly go that way? Turns out I'm kind of thinking it might have been. But it's good I never went down that path. Um, you know, I, w- I was living with a group of guys that uh, I, I would say didn't have the basic understanding of, you know, hygiene and taking care of yourself at that age. And I was constantly cleaning up after them. It was just constantly just like everywhere they went, cleaning up after them, cleaning up after them. So it got to be one night and, you know, had my chef whites on and did all this cleaning throughout the day and I was all excited and you know, I, I picked up the trash, and, you know, I grabbed my keys, and I, and, I, and I said goodbye to all of them, and I went downstairs, and I threw the trash away, and I got to my Jeep to go to my job, and I'm, like, looking, and I'm, like, where, you know, where are my keys, you know, and I'm feeling in my back pocket, and I'm, like, okay, I got my wallet, like, I had my keys, you know, and I'm looking, and I'm looking, and can't find my keys, and, you know, I get that panic feeling, you know, I... I can totally relate to the situation referring to, like, the person who was telling the story about the pets, you know, that panic feeling, you know, when, when something close to you is missing and, you know, you need to, you need to find it. So I'm looking and I'm looking and I'm not understanding it because, you know, I'm baked, you know, and, you know, and and I'm, and I'm also, you know, it it had been just like maybe every weekend, you know, I'm, I'm to a point where the days is just blurring as far as just one after another. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm like, okay, what did I do? Like, okay, I took the trash out. So I run into the alley and I'm, I'm tearing through all this trash and I'm like, oh, I know I threw them away. I threw them away. And I'm throwing all this trash, you know, and I'm throwing all this trash in the alley, all this trash, and angry with myself over the fact that, like, I knew I threw my keys away, and I'm just saying to myself over and over again, I threw it away, I, I threw it away, I threw it away. And, you know, in that moment, like, I, I, I was really throwing it away. I, I went back upstairs and... And, like, I was confused. I didn't know quite what was going on because I was so flustered about my keys. And I get upstairs, and, like, there's a party going on. And I'm like, okay. So they had people over? Like, the, the house is spotless. Like, this is a normal occurrence. They invited people over. Like, it's, like, this huge party going on. Like, all right, like another one to clean up after. And I'm looking around, and I'm, and I'm seeing more of the details, and I'm realizing that all around the apartment, all around the place, are panties, my panties, all around this apartment. Like, my personal things that I would keep in my room in an area where I was not going to be outed yet, because... I wasn't yet. It was just that early on in my transition to where I hadn't even taken it as something that I could do. So it was something I kept behind closed doors. So at this rate, I'm, you know, I'm like, okay, I know these guys like are already closed minded, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm irate. I'm so angry at the situation as far as like they went into my room and now like I'm the butt of this joke, like 
what is going on here? And, and I was so angry, so angry, and still so flustered. And, you know, and, and, and Robbie, my roommate, runs up to me. And he's like, are you all right? And I'm like, no, I'm not all right. Like, you guys are fucking assholes. Like, are you serious? You went into my room and went through my personal things? Like, I know a couple of you guys know these things about me, but I didn't necessarily want this whole party to know. And he looks at me and he goes, did you find your keys? And I'm like, no, I didn't find my keys, man. Like, what does that have to do with anything? Who's seen Fight Club? Okay, so it was that moment in time that was so terrifying for me. Because I didn't understand in that moment of what he meant. Why did he ask me if I found my keys? How could he even known that my keys were missing? He's inside at this party. I'm outside looking for my keys. He thinks I'm gone. Boom. Like it hit me. Like I had been doing so many psychedelics. So much drug use that I am I'm disassociating and thinking that I'm leaving for work. And in actuality, it all hit me that like, okay, that never happened. I was tearing through this apartment looking for my keys. And I start to just pick up the pieces and I'm emotionally broken at this point. Just like, what is really going on here? And I'm obviously at this point, you know, the humility factor is just skyrocketing and I'm picking up all my panties throughout my apartment that, you know, were my own doing. And it was like a moment of time where I, I could honestly say to myself, okay, here it is. Like, uh, like I, I have a moment in time where I can say I, I don't have control over my life. And like I got to like the last couple pair and this girl looks at me. I'd never met her before. Like, and I could tell just like the empathy she felt. And she looked at me and she goes, oh, so... It looks like you're picking up what you actually were going to throw away. That's good for you. That's my story. Thank you so much for that story. Uh, you know, my favorite thing about Story Slam is that most of the time people tell a really humorous story, but every now and then we get these kernels and these just amazing insights into a different life than we've ever experienced. And, and, a, and a real serious, real experience that I don't think any of us could ever have, outside of this, I don't know that any of us could have ever experienced that or, or, or not experienced, but you know what I mean? This is a really special thing that we get to do once a month, and I think we should try and do it more than once a month. And I don't mean in this kind of platform. I mean in your day-to-day -day lives that we get to really just say to somebody, hey, I want to hear your story. I want to know where you're coming from. That is my favorite thing about this. And I, honestly, Christina, thank you so much for sharing that story. That was, that was awesome. All right, that is our uh, podcast for today. Again, that was uh, the theme of Petrified that we had in October. There was a costume contest. It was fun. Uh, you know, I meant what I said at the end. Storytelling is a very unique thing that we get to do, and it's fun to do it once a month. But 
I don't think it should just be uh, at, at that type of platform or event. We we can do that through our daily lives, and uh, it would be great if we did. We'd learn a lot about each other and be open to that kind of thing. Hey, our next Story Slam is Saturday, January 16th at the Wilmar Center. The theme is humiliation. Uh, Sign-up starts at 6. We go till 10. Come anytime between 6 and 7 to ensure a spot. And uh, we'll see you there and catch you on the next podcast.